Well, we are wrapping up today a series we've been working through called My Blank Family. And so what we're doing is we're looking at several family stories in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And we're just asking the question, what does God want to say to families? And what does that look like? What does that mean? And so last week, if you were here, we looked at the story of these two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And we talked about the manipulation in their family. And we said, what, what does it mean to have a manipulative family? Well, how about the ways that we manipulate one another in our families? And we looked at how God intersected that story. And so today, we're going to continue to take Jacob's family and his, his family story forward a little bit more as we wrap up this series. Uh, in my family, my wife and I have four boys. My oldest two boys, Alan and Andrew, they are 18 and 17 right now. When they were, I want to say like seven and six, uh, what, you, what you need to know is Alan, my oldest one, is an introvert. He's more of an introverted personality. My son, my second born son, Drew, uh, is an extreme extrovert. In fact, many of you have met him. You know that. And so uh, when they were seven and six, Andrew, the extrovert, he had 10 imaginary friends. 10. And they all had names, they all had various superpowers that they, they each possessed, and so he would always be playing with one of his imaginary friends and talking about his imaginary friend. Now, most kids go through a stage where they have one imaginary friend, right? That's pretty normal. But Andrew had 10 of them. Apparently, he was just very popular with imaginary people. I guess that's how it worked. And so uh, his older brother, Alan, who is the introvert, got tired of Andrew constantly talking about his imaginary friends, playing with his imaginary friends. He was always doing stuff with his imaginary friends. And so Alan, who loves to mess with his younger brother still to this day, that's the case, he decided to mess with him. And so he, he began to pretend like he was playing with Andrew's imaginary friends as well. And so if Andrew was over here playing with this one and this one, he'd say, well, well me, and, and he'd name the other couple of them. He'd say, well, well we're going to play over here. And so he would pretend like he was playing with, Al, with Andrew's imaginary friends. But where it really exploded was Alan took the next step then, and he came to Drew, and he said, hey, Andrew, uh, I've been talking with your imaginary friends, and they've let me know that they only want to play with me from now on. <laughs> They actually do not want to play with you. They only want to play with me, and they've all let me know that. And so literally, Andrew comes to me crying. He's actually crying. This really happened. And he says, Dad, will you tell Alan to stop stealing my imaginary friends? <laughs> now, what do you say as a parent <laughs> to this? It's one thing to be rejected by real people and to go through the wound that comes, you know, when you're rejected by people, but it's like a whole different level of low to be rejected by your own imaginary friends so they can go play with your older brother. <laughs> and I remember like trying to figure out how do I, what do I even say to this and thinking to myself, how did you let your brother get in your head like that? Like how, what in the world is going on with you that you would actually believe that he somehow had that kind of power over you, that he could steal your own imaginary friends away from you? And he, here's what I think. I think it wasn't just a case of immaturity on his part. I think the reason that worked, I think the reason that Alan was able to tap into his brother's you know, fear here of losing his imaginary friends is because he tapped into an internal dialogue that is inside all of our heads. And it's an internal dialogue we have from the time we're very young, and we learn as we get older how to mask it. We learn how to conceal it a little bit better, but the internal dialogue inside of all of us goes something like this. I only survive by comparing and competing. 
We learn life is a zero-sum game. If somebody else wins, that means I'm losing. And my worth, my value, comes from how well I stack up against whoever it is, a sibling. Uh, maybe it's a parent. And, and man, my, my mom or my dad was larger than life, and they, they lived this life. And so my value comes from comparing myself and competing with them. Maybe it's an ideal, like a famous person. We say, I should have their life. I should be like them. And we measure ourselves by how close we're able to get to that. And then as we go through life, as we age, it gets to a point where it's like, well, I, I, it's about me getting into that school. It's about me landing that job or having that career because we, we do this thing where we think, I'm only gonna survive. My life only has value. I only have worth as well as I am able to compare and compete with others. And that's the internal dialogue that we see going around in our heads. And this is the internal dialogue that's going on in the story that we're looking at this morning. Uh, Jacob, if we, you were here last week, we talked about how Jacob is uh, the son of the promise. And he goes to his uncle Laban in Haran, and he ends up marrying Laban's two younger daughters, which by the way are his Cousins, Yes, just making sure you're paying attention here. He marries his two cousins. That's absolutely right. And these two ladies, their names are Rachel and Leah. And Rachel and Leah, in their story, we're going to see, they are caught up in this game of comparing and competing. And when we allow ourselves to constantly be in this, I only survive by the, and, and how well I compare and I compete, it leads to jealousy in our families. It leads to intense levels of jealousy and so Rachel and Leah are these two sisters. Jacob wants Rachel. He wants to marry Rachel. He loves Rachel. But what happens is his uncle Laban tricks him, he manipulates him and tricks him into marrying Leah first, even though he wants to be with Rachel. And so Rachel's the one he really wants, but he ends up getting both of them. Now, it's interesting how the text talks about Rachel and Leah. When the text talks about Rachel, what it literally says is it says, Rachel was lovely in form. She was lovely in form. Uh, my wife told me that when I, when I say that, that Rachel was lovely informed to not do this when I said that. Uh, it was distasteful. So I want you to know I plan to keep that promise. And so Rachel was lovely informed. That's what she was. She was beautiful. But when, it, when the Bible talks about Leah, the way it describes Leah is, is it says, Leah had weak eyes. And so scholars have debated, what does that mean that she had weak eyes? The way I think I understand it is it was a very Hebrew way of saying, you wish you had weak eyes when you looked at her, okay? She was ugly. Some people think she actually, it was saying that she actually had something wrong with her eyes that affected her appearance. Either way, Rachel is the beautiful one. Leah is the ugly one. And Rachel's the one that Jacob loves. He wants Rachel, but he's got both of them along the way. So that's, that's where we begin their story. We're going to intersect their story. Genesis chapter 29, starting in verse 31, says this. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, that's the ugly sister, he enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. So you see, God is at work in their story in this moment. He allows Leah to conceive, but Rachel is not allowed to conceive. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, the Lord has noticed my misery, and now my husband will love me. So, so Leah literally has a child, and she thinks to herself, all right, now that I've had this baby, this baby is going to fix everything in my marriage. Nobody's ever thought that before, right? That's not something we do today, is it? 
That's literally what she thinks. I'm gonna, have, I'm gonna get married, I'm gonna have babies, and that's gonna fix everything in my family. Uh, the name Reuben, Leah goes on to have three sons in a row. And the names that she, she names her sons and the names that she gives her sons tell a very sad story about her life. The name Reuben means to see. So she literally gives birth to her son Reuben. She names him to see and she says, now maybe my husband will see me. Maybe I won't be invisible to him anymore. But she still is. So then she has a second son and she names him Simeon. Simeon has to do with hearing. The name actually has to do with, with, uh, with hearing. And she says, now maybe my husband will listen to me. Maybe he'll actually hear what I'm saying, but he doesn't. So then she has a third son and she names him Levi. The name Levi literally means to be attached. That's what it means. And so she says, now maybe my husband will be attached to me. Maybe he'll finally, his heart will be attached to me, but he doesn't. It's, it's a sad story. You say, well, what's going on there? What's happening is Leah is trying to find her value and her worth through traditional family values. <clears throat> and these were traditional family values of this time. At, at this time in the ancient Near East, the way a woman really had value in that culture, you have to remember this is a culture where one out of three women died in childbirth. And so if a woman not only could have children, but if she could give her husband sons, if she could actually have sons, her value went way, way up in society. And so Leah is just having son after son after son. So what's happened is I've gotten married and now look, I'm having sons, I'm giving my husband sons, but it's not working for her. She plugged in the formula. She did the thing you're supposed to do to, to be happy and to be successful, but it's not working. Her husband doesn't love her. Her husband loves her sister more than he loves her. So she thinks, man, if I just get married and have babies, it's gonna fix everything in my life, and it doesn't. And all it does is it leaves her in this competition game. And so the way that Leah feels about her life is Leah wants what Rachel has. Her life is defined, but I want what my sister has. Doesn't matter how many sons I have. Doesn't matter how, how I, I'm unhappy. I want what my sister Rachel has. In the meantime, Rachel... The one who's loved, the one who's desired and cherished by her husband. She can't have children. Go ahead to the next uh, passage here. This is uh, Genesis 30, starting in verse 1. When Rachel saw that she wasn't having any children for Jacob, she became jealous of her sister. She pleaded with Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Do you get the feeling that Rachel's a little high maintenance? Do you, you pick up on that just a little bit? Then Jacob became furious with Rachel. Am I God, he asked. He's the one who's kept you from having children. Husbands, that's what you do when you get yourself into a pinch. Just blame God. There you go. That's all, uh, just, it's God, obviously. That's the reason why this isn't happening. Then Rachel told him, take my maid, Bilhah, and sleep with her. She will bear children for me, and through her, I can have a family too. So Rachel gave her servant, Bilhah, to Jacob as a wife, and he slept with her. Bilhah became pregnant and presented him with a son. Rachel named him Dan, for she said, God has vindicated me. He has heard my request and given me a son. Then Bilhah became pregnant again and gave Jacob a second son. Rachel named him Naphtali, for she said, I have struggled hard with my sister and I'm winning. Yes, reproductive victory. That's what it's all about. That's what I'm winning now. She's, just, she's now in this competition, this comparing game back and forth with her sister, and she's literally right now saying, I'm winning the competition. 
You see how jealousy is just impacting this family. Now, what's happening here in this story is actually a very common practice in that time, in that part of the world. If you were here the first week of this series, you know when we talked about Abraham and Sarah, what Rachel is doing here is exactly what Sarah did in order to have children. In this culture, if a woman was barren and she was wealthy, the way a wealthy woman who was barren could have children is she would take like a servant, a female servant, and she would give that servant to her husband as like a sex slave, and then she would have children through that servant, and she would basically claim those children as her own. That's what she's doing here. And so she's saying, now, this is how I'm going to have children through Bilhah, my slave, and now they're going to be my children. Now I'm winning. I'm beating my sister. I'm finally back, getting back at her. So as we said just a few minutes ago, uh, Leah wants what Rachel has, but what we also see is Rachel wants what Leah has. They both want what the other one has. I wish I could have her life. Yes, I'm cherished, I'm loved, I've got, but I, I can't have children, I can't have sons. And that's how you get value. Both of them want the life that the other one has, and they're miserable. The soap opera continues. This is uh, verse nine. Meanwhile, Leah realized that she wasn't getting pregnant anymore, so she took her servant Zilpah. So now we have Bilhah, now we've got Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Soon Zilpah presented him with a son. Leah named him Gad, for she said, how fortunate I am. Then Zilpah gave Jacob a second son, and Leah named him Asher, for she said, what joy is mine, now the other women will celebrate with me. Right, so Rachel's like, I'm winning, and now Leah's like, oh no, now they're gonna celebrate with me. Can we just stop, do you realize what's happening here in this story? The, the, Jacob's wives are literally bringing him women to have sex with. Can, can we just agree, this probably isn't God's ideal plan for marriage and the family, <laughs> right? This is what's amazing to me is like people will come to me and they'll say, man, I just, I just want to know how to have a biblical marriage. Will you just tell me how to have a biblical marriage? I'm like, have you read the Bible? <laughs> you do not want a biblical marriage. That is not what you want. Well, you want a Christ-centered marriage. That's something very different. You do not want a biblical marriage. We've said this every week of this series, but what we're seeing here is the Bible actually doesn't give us like these ideal families that we're supposed to emulate and be like, and we're supposed to look at their story and go, oh man, if only I could be more like them. That's not what we're supposed to do with these stories. All the Bible actually gives us is Human failure stories, just failure after failure of people trying to build their own family their own way. People trying to manipulate, make someone else do what they want them to do. It leads to all these divisions in their family. They, they try to out-compete and out-win and establish themselves in some sort of superior position over other members of their family. That's all we're given. Failure story after failure story. And the reason those failure stories are in the Bible is we're supposed to read them, not to emulate them, but we're supposed to read them to understand that they actually point to something or someone greater who we don't see yet in the story. So that, that's what this whole story is actually about. So if we could just take a second, let's hit the pause button. Let's just hit a timeout. Let's hit the pause button on Leah and Rachel. We'll come back to them in a second and finish up their story. But if we could just kind of turn this toward ourselves for a minute and just ask the question, do we do this? I mean, do, do we see ourselves a little bit in this story? Do we let comparisons drive our lives? 
Do we let this zero-sum game of my value, my worth, I survive by basically competing and comparing with other people? Do we let comparisons drive our lives? There was a study that was done, uh, the, Wall Street, the Wall Street Journal recently um, talked about this study. Uh, the rate of moderate to severe depression among U.S. college students actually rose from 23.2% in 2007 to 41.1% in 2018. From 2007 to 2018, severe depression, people who were being treated for severe depression who were young, in the younger generation, college students, almost doubled. There's other studies, you can go Google them if you want. Study after study has been done to show that if something happened in 2007, there, was the, there became this dramatic spike in people who are being treated for anxiety and depression both. For some reason, anxiety and depression from 2007 to now just, just spiked, just went straight up. There was this huge increase in people who were being treated for severe de depression and anxiety in our country, which makes you ask the question, right? What happened in 2007? What took place in 2007 that so dramatically increased all this anxiety and depression, especially among the younger generation in our country? I have a theory. On June 29, 2007, the first iPhone was released. Now, now, hold on, hold on a second. Here's mine, okay? Here's my iPhone. I have one too. I, I'm actually not saying iPhones are bad. What I'm saying, iPhones are just a tool. That's all they are. But what I am saying is I think we have failed to understand in our families and in our lives that, that these tools can also be a tool of torture that we carry around in our pockets that are just stationary there in our pockets all day and we pick them up and we check them all the time. And for many of us, the way our lives revolve around the way that we use these phones to basically torture ourselves by constantly flipping through social media and comparing our lives to other people's lives and their highlight reels. We want other people's bodies. We want other people's vacations. We want other people's possessions, friendships, jobs, whatever it is. For many of us, the way we start our day is we wake up in the morning and maybe we go to the bathroom, grab a cup of coffee, and then we sit down and Within the first 20 minutes of the day, almost all of us get on that phone and we, and we go some social media, Instagram, Facebook, something, and we begin to look at it. All, all the generations, not just the younger generation. And what we're seeing now, study after study is showing how screen time is now impacting families, impacting family life, and the results are not pretty. And everybody in the family is kind of off on their, nobody, we're, we're struggling more and more to be fully present and fully with each other in our families. Every member of the family is sort of off in their own world, in their own comparison game, going over here, looking at different things and looking through things. And so what's happening more and more and more is that, uh, let's say like for women, um, there, there's a sense that, man, if I'm, if I'm not like the ideal woman with like two babies in each arm, running my own personal business, you know, going to the gym, making it to Fit Body Boot Camp every day of the week, and posting these perfect pics on Instagram. What it means is that somehow I'm a failure. And what happens is, is we question uh, ourselves instead of questioning the system that, that's been created that makes us feel this way all the time. And in fact, that's exactly what you see in the story of Rachel and Leah. 
They never stop. What's amazing about this story is at no point in the story do Rachel and Leah stop and go, hold, hold on a minute. I, time out. Just let's step back here. Maybe there's a problem with this patriarchal system we're living in that like objectifies women and leads to all this abuse. And yeah, I mean, we're literally bringing our husbands, women to have sex. I mean, is there something maybe we should look at? They never do that. They never question the system that they're in. They only question themselves. What if we stopped questioning ourselves when we were making all these comparisons and saying, what's wrong with me? Why don't I have the life she has? Why don't I? That's what Rachel and Leah are doing. What would happen if we actually started to question the system that we're in? I started to question, why is it that I feel terrible about myself at the end of every day after I've been scrolling through this all day? What if we actually began to wake up every morning instead of just in the first 20 minutes of the day at some point getting on social media and going through it, what if we began by getting up and the first thing that we allow ourselves to look at or read is the word of God? We just open up the Bible and we allow what God says about us, who we are through Jesus, through the sacrifice that we're a child of God, what we were just singing about. What if we let that flow over us and be the first thing that we immerse ourselves in every morning and then we lived out of that? You'll get to Facebook some point in the day, but, but, but what if you started your day with that? What if we started questioning the system we were in and began to getting our focus and our lives off of other people and other people's highlight reels and other people's lives and began to put our focus on the person of Jesus? Would that change some things in your life? Would that change some things in your family? What if we began to speak to our children about who they are in Christ, not who they are as, as they compare and compete with other people and other families. The generation that's growing up, if you're a parent in the same stage of life as me, the generation that's growing up in our house right now is incredibly insecure and is struggling to make sense of their own identity, of who they are. And it, most of their identity is based on how they think they compare with someone else. And by the way, they don't think they measure up, most of them. Is it time to start questioning the system instead of questioning ourselves? Rachel and Leah never question the system. They just say, what's wrong with me? Why am I not good enough? Why do I not have what she has? All this failure, all this story, the brokenness of this story, even the patriarchal system and how failed it is points to something greater. I'm gonna show you the passage of scripture where it does. This is so powerful when you see that God put this right in the story, in the book of Genesis. Go ahead, Genesis 29, verse 35. Remember, Leah's had three sons, right? Reuben, hopefully my husband will see me. Simeon, hopefully my husband will start to listen to me now. And then Levi, hopefully my husband will be attached to me. Fourth, she has a fourth son. Once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Judah, for she said, now I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children. The name Judah means praise. So it's maybe my husband will see me, maybe he'll love me, maybe he'll be attached to me. And finally, she gets to the point, she has her fourth son, Judah. She said, I'm just naming this one praise because now all I'm gonna do is I'm gonna praise God. Praise God, I have a son. What's so powerful about this moment is she has taken her focus off of her husband and her family to give her her sense of worth and her sense of identity. And I'm like, I'm plugging in the formula, I'm doing this. She takes her eyes off of that and she puts her focus and her eyes on the Lord. I'm just gonna praise God for what he's done in my life. It's gratitude. 
thankfulness. I'm just gonna look at what God has done. Look at what he's blessed me with. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna praise the Lord. That's what I'm gonna focus on now. I'm just gonna focus on praising him. Why does that matter in the overall story of the Bible? This is so powerful. Jacob went on to have, he, he had 12 sons in total. And those 12 sons of Jacob eventually became the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Messiah, Jesus, centuries later, came through the line of one of those sons from the tribes of Israel. Guess which son Jesus came through? Judah. Judah. The woman, Leah, the woman who nobody wanted, becomes the great, 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 whatever, grandmother of the Messiah, Jesus, the one who would redeem and reconcile and be the ransom for it all. Jesus became the man nobody wanted. He was born in a manger. Uh, the prophet Isaiah said he had no beauty that we would be attracted to him or drawn to him. He wasn't beautiful. He wasn't attractive. He wouldn't have had perfect Instagram posts. <laughs> and he goes to those who were his own people, but he's rejected by them. And by the time Jesus gets to the cross, the end of his life, he's basically been abandoned by even his closest family, his closest friends, except for a couple of people. Jesus was the man that nobody wanted who was born from the woman that nobody wanted. Here's the gospel. Here's why that matters. God actually didn't choose to, re, to save and redeem the world through the person of Jesus in spite of human weakness. God chose to save and redeem the world through the person of Jesus through human weakness. He became weak. He became a human to show us that that was the path. What that means is that you actually don't get salvation into your life by your own strength. You don't get God's salvation into your life by comparing and competing and measuring up and going, look at me, I'm winning, I'm above them, I'm better than them, well, at least I'm not as sinful as they are, look at me, now I'm justified, I must be, that's not how you get this salvation. What I'm saying is if you don't, come to this place in your life where you are able to come before God and recognize that you are a horrible moral failure and a sinner and that you have no value or worth apart from the grace of God, you are not weak enough yet for Leah and her son and the great salvation of God. It comes through weakness. It comes through humility. And salvation is God's great gift to us. What does that mean? It means that God is God, not a God of scarcity. It's not a, life is not a zero-sum game. In the kingdom of God, there is plenty of room at the table. And just because someone else is blessed doesn't mean there's less for you. God is a God of abundant blessing. We're getting new carpet and chairs in a couple weeks. Okay? God is a God of incredible abundant blessing He's not limited by whatever competition or, or comparison it is that you are making in your own little tiny human world. He's a God of great abundance. And we get to that abundance by humbling ourselves and seeking him and saying, I need you. I'm gonna take my focus off all these comparisons. I'm gonna put it onto you for my hope and my salvation. 
What's so powerful here is about Leah is at this point in her life, she's finally taken her heart's deepest hopes off of the old way, off of the traditional family values, off of what the culture tells her. If you just get married and have babies, make sure they're sons somehow. And then, you know, then that's how you're going to be a, a person of worth and value. She takes her eyes off of that as she puts them on the Lord. She has this baby named Judah. And she says, praise God. I'm just going to praise him. Look at what he's done in my life. I'm done trying to do this whole game. And it may not be your immediate family. If you make that shift and you begin to live fully for God and allow him to define your identity, it, may, it, may, it will begin to change the trajectory of your family. And it may not even be your immediate family that will be impacted. Maybe it'll be generations to come. Maybe it'll be your grandchildren that are gonna be sitting under the tree and eating the fruit of the tree that you plant today. That's what God does in families. He begins to restore and redeem a person and then he begins to redeem and restore a family. And as we become Christ-centered, centered around the person of Jesus, and we all begin to want the same things for each other that God wants for each other, it's not about competing, it's not about comparing, it's about wanting what God wants. And he begins to lead our families. That's when true transformation begins to happen. That's what God wants for your family, that's what he wants for my family. And so here's how I think we're supposed to end this sermon and, and even this, uh, this entire uh, teaching series is I wanna just ask a few questions. And so uh, what I wanna do here, I don't know what that thing is doing, but I'm hoping it's not gonna like electrocute me or something, but isn't that funny that that, that happens right before we get to the best part of the, the morning. Isn't that amazing? I don't even know what to do about that. Try to ignore it. Uh, <laughs> There we go. Thank you. <laughs> so here, here's, I'm serious about that. I think that distraction is, on, is uh, not an accident. Uh, I really think there's some of you right now who need to do some business with God. And so here's what I feel like God wants me to do. Uh, I want to close this time with just a few questions up here on the screen. And what I want you to do is I want you to change your posture. I want you just to be open to whatever the Holy Spirit might say to you right now. I think with some of you in this room, you just need to hear from the Holy Spirit. What he's going to say to you in the next couple minutes is more important than anything I've said. So just put yourself in a posture saying, Lord, I'm ready to hear from you. First question is this, what do you really put your deepest hopes in? What do you really put your deepest hopes in? Allow the Holy Spirit to just to speak to that in your life. What do you really check? What's the first thing you go to? Is it your bank account? Is it... How many likes? How many followers? Is it what's happening with them? What do you really put your deepest hopes in? You need to transfer that. You need to do what Leah did. You need to transfer that over to the Lord and to say, I come to you right now, Jesus. You're the only one who can provide. Second question. Where in your life is jealousy impacting your relationship with God and your family? Where in your life are these comparisons and this jealousy ripping apart from the life that God wants you to have, from the joy that he wants to give you, from the gratitude and thankfulness he wants you to have? Do you need to just give him that right now? Maybe for some of you, is, is there actually a person and the name of a person that right now you just need to, get, to give to the Lord. I just give that person to you. 
My battle, my struggle is not with that person to try to be better than them, to compare, to compete against them. And lastly, what new habits do you need to put in your life to break the trap of comparison? What new habits do you need to put into your life to break this trap that's on you? Do you need to begin to wake up every morning and instead of going straight to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever it is, do you need to just open the word of God and just let him remind you who he is and remind you who you are because of the cross? There's no competition at the foot of the cross. Jesus' death was just as much as for you as it was for me or for anyone else. And it's only through him that we have what we need. Do you need to maybe take a period of time and fast? Fasting is a spiritual discipline where we allow the things that we satisfy our hunger with to be put aside for a minute. Maybe you take a social media fast and what it begins to do is it begins to awaken our spirit man, our, the internal person who wants what God wants for our lives. Is there any new habits, anywhere you need to try something new to break out of this comparison, to stop going back to the same old broken well, but to begin to do exactly what Jesus said to do? Come to me. If you're weary and heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest, true rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. kids, we have imaginary friends. I think when we, be, when we become adults, we have imaginary competition. We imagine in our heads that, that uh, it's a zero-sum game and there's all this competition. In Christ, God is not comparing you to anyone. You need to give him your imaginary competition. For some of you in this room, maybe who you need to give the Lord is yourself. Maybe the, you need to start with you. That's you. I, I want you just to pray this with me right now. Lord Jesus, right now I give to you myself. I confess you as Lord of my life. I allow you full access to my life. I confess, Lord, that I can do nothing to save myself. I can do nothing to compare and to compete and to win and to make myself any better than anyone else. I come to you in weakness. I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize I'm one of the many failure stories that we read about. I just need your grace in my life. So Jesus, would you come into my life? Would you redeem me? Would you lead me? Would you show me how to be the husband or father or wife or mother or child that you've called me to be? For the others of us in this room, Jesus, I, I just pray if there's a person we just need to give over to you, a person we're comparing ourselves with, a, a person that we hold ourselves up to as a standard. God, others of us in this room, I just pray if there's a habit we just need to break, it just needs to come off of us like chains breaking right now. In the power of your name, Jesus, I pray that you would do it. Chains of comparison, chains of competition, chains of jealousy, of thinking that we're not enough. God, would you give us the power and faith to start questioning the system instead of questioning ourselves? Would you give us the power to begin to see our life for who you've called us to be? Would you begin to allow us to experience freedom in who you are, Jesus? And I pray that it would not only impact our lives, but it would impact our families and it would impact our, our lives and our families for generations to come. That's what we're hungry for, God. 
That's what we're hungry for. Would you do it? It's in Jesus' powerful name we ask this. And everyone said,